This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guests today are Luis Balesteros, Michael Yusim, and Tyler Rye. Uh, and we are going to talk to them about their research uh, on uh, how companies can lead recovery from natural disasters. So, Mike, Tyler, Luis, thank you very much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, I mean, the, the research that you have done is so topical, especially in light of what is going on worldwide with the coronavirus. And I was wondering if as a starting point before we get to the research, we could actually talk a little bit about your assessment of of the disaster itself. Is this something that you see uh, as something that is short-lived from which companies are likely to recover quickly? Or is this something that will require a much longer recovery process? So how, how do you assess the disaster? Luis, would you like to start? Yeah, I can say something about that. We we just finished a study that basically taps on on the the work with Tyler and Mike, uh, but basically analyzes what are the economic consequences for business organizations. And what we have is is several type of disruptions, including pandemics. But uh, what what is what is really uh, potentially damaging for companies in the case of the coronavirus is the reliance on <clears throat> reliance on China and arguably the the internationalization of business uh, in in the last twenty years has been highly driven by uh, the 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 role of China and the role of technology. And if you consider what China was in 2002, 2003, when we had the last big pandemic, uh, the role of the share of the global GDP at that time for China was around 4%. Uh, now the that same number is, is around 16, 17%. So that that tells you the the dependence that the global economy has on China, and especially the the importance that it has for not only large companies that are particularly located in the Wuhan city that has been affected by by the virus, but also small and medium enterprises that have been able to compete at the global level because they have been using the ability to outsource. To China, their production and achieve a lower a labor costs. So what we are seeing is, is something that is evolving, and, and no one knows what is going to happen. But uh, nowadays, we have some figures for large companies that they are estimating down their their, their previous annual estimates for growth. Uh, Companies like Apple, uh, all the car companies that are located in, in in the Wuhan city, and and what is is hard to account is for the small and medium enterprises that are going to likely be suffering the most from from this shock. There are some estimates that from the Chinese government that said that around 
uh, around 97% of small and medium enterprises uh, are going to be hit by by the virus uh, uh, shock, but also uh, around 40% of them might be out of business if the recovery doesn't happen in the following month, uh, simply because they are going to run out of uh, cash. Uh, the, there's another there's another estimates at the global level that suggest that uh, global GDP can 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 be can be can be affected in 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 uh, in an amount of between five to ten percent, which we we currently don't know really given the as I said the high dependency on on the Chinese market. So this is an evolving situation, and, and the fact that the business organizations have been highly affected is basically driven yeah. the, the the response to to the to the virus. Thank, thank you, Turner. Would you might want to respond to this? Yeah, I think Luis really hit it on the head. I think that the big challenge that comes from something like this is just the disruption to companies that have ties with China. Uh, and because the global economy is so intertwined, I mean, this has huge implications for global supply chains and especially, you know, small, medium-sized enterprises that rely on these to be competitive, uh, both in domestic and global markets. So in terms of what the, you know, the overall effects of this virus are going to be, I mean, I think it's still a bit of an open question. Um, it's probably going to lead to some firms failing. Larger firms will be able to absorb the hit. But, you know, how disruptive this becomes, how long-term the consequences are, you know, what the recovery period looks like, I think it's going to depend on how long it takes to actually get this under control. Yeah. You know, if we look at, you know, previous, you know, pandemics, SARS, you know, uh, MERS, MERS, other coronaviruses, um, you know, this will come to an end. Um, you know, a vaccine will be developed, it'll, you know, be brought under control and, you know, things will get back to normal until the next disruption. But if this ends up being something that takes a while because of the specifics of this disease, you know, how communicable it is, uh, you know, this could be, this could be something that, uh, you know, creates bigger challenges than some others have. Sure. And Tyler, to put that in a certain perspective, uh, SARS back in, I think it was 0203, is estimated to have knocked about 1% out of the annual growth of the Chinese GDP. And we've already heard uh, Luis mention maybe worldwide, it could be at least a couple of points and even more. And that's a way of saying that this is a, a crisis of a magnitude, potentially, that exceeds uh, anything that we've seen in, in recent years. That said, uh, what's especially interesting to us is the fact that companies now uh, appreciating the kind of numbers we're looking at, that they have to become involved in several ways. On the more, let's call it the reactive side, uh, companies we know from direct contact now are spending a lot of time thinking about the impact on their employees, especially mm -hmm. if they have operations in China, like Apple, right. where the suppliers are, are in China. First concern, of course, is the health of the employees, and many companies now are making a lot of phone calls to make certain that uh, that's the primary agenda. Then there are all these uh, columns, very important, not even secondary, very important, though, second concern, agendas of um, making payroll, uh, yeah. of getting uh, 
parts for automaking even in Korea, which has been affected directly by its part suppliers around uh, Wuhan, as we've read. Uh, and then third, which is um, a little bit out of how we think about business, many companies now are beginning to think about what they can do more proactively to help China to stop the epidemic spread. So makers of uh, medical equipment, uh, as happened in the case of Ebola in West Africa, are mobilizing to contribute equipment, contribute expertise. And for us, that's uh, one of the new developments of the last 15 years where companies worldwide uh, quickly work to defend their own self-interested uh, self concerns, obviously the health of their employees among those, but are increasingly playing a, a, an active role, on, in this case, the global stage in providing equipment, supplies, expertise, and beyond. Um, based on everything you just said, uh, I, I think it's a, a, a natural link to your research uh, in terms of how companies respond uh, uh, to lead the recovery process. And I was wondering if uh, we could talk a little bit about uh, your study and what, were some, what, what some of the key findings are about uh, uh, some of the main highlights of the research. Uh, Tyler? So I think that what makes a case like this interesting is that it's different from other types of natural disasters where you have some sort of destruction of physical infrastructure. And so when you're looking at, you know, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, you know, a lot of the corporate response is, okay, how can we quickly get in to restore market functioning, you know, build the infrastructure back up, get markets working again and get back to business as usual. And I think it, there's a really interesting question about what the corporate response looks like in a context like this, where, you know, the human suffering is not as acute or on the same sort of scale as, you know, with a rapid onset natural disaster. So like Mike was saying, you know, a company is coming in to lend, you know, support, logistics, expertise to aid in the recovery. I mean, I think that that is going to happen because there is the interest in getting things back up and running um, and doing everything that companies can to, you know, minimize the amount of disruption this is going to cause. Now, what that looks like in this specific context, I mean, this is something I was thinking about this morning. You know, I'm not sure what that is. I'd be really curious, you know, Luis and Mike, what you think. Uh, Luis, what do you think? Well, that's an important point, right? So this is this is a specific type of disruption that is evolving and that difficult completely the response and changes changes. The, the potential effect of aid uh, coming from uh, traditional sources like governments and multilateral agencies, but also private companies. But what is interesting and, and basically fits what Tyler, Mike, and I have been studying is the rapid response by business organizations that uh, the the this this space is fa is much faster than whatever response comes from traditional actors. And, and this is something that, that basically center is, is at the center of what we think is the, the, the factor that is explaining, explaining the effect of why countries receive a substantial amount of aid from multinational enterprises recover faster. 
the fact that the emergency is uh, is addressed by business organizations faster than governments is, is really important because we know that whatever the ultimate cost of the shock is going to be depends on what happens during the first the first weeks and if you see what happened with the coronavirus is precisely uh, what we saw in so many other cases and especially natural disasters as Tyler suggested the there was uh, um, the traditional period of assessment by the World Health, Health Organization in trying to understand whether or not this should be a global crisis. And it took a lot of time for them to basically ring the bell and, and, and formally call this a global crisis. And this has a lot of implications for funding that comes from abroad, and especially funding that comes from traditional sources, multilateral agencies, so the United Nations, the World Bank, and the World Health Organization itself, doesn't issue, don't issue funds until uh, this is called, uh, formally called a crisis. And and then you you saw the, the spike in the number of victims and deaths uh, last week uh, that basically happen in just one day. And, and the reason for that is that we, we know now that there was an, an undercounting of the magnitude of the crisis. Uh, so there's a lot of uncertainty in, in among traditional decision makers, the policy makers and governments around the world and multilateral agencies. But that didn't happen with business organizations. So you see cases of uh, multinational enterprises that have local operations in Wuhan that were responding, helping their employees a few days after the first news on the crisis started. And, and it took several days for the traditional responders to come to the area. So this, this, is, this is something that eventually we're going to analyze, but I, I clearly see that the fact that China is an important component of the global economy, and especially Wuhan and other cities that have been affected by 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 the coronavirus, are hubs for uh, so many industries, and especially car and technology uh, industries, uh, we've seen a, a fast response by by multinational enterprises. Yeah, and I would just add to what Tyler and Luis have said. Every crisis of this magnitude, always uh, when they come along, they often feel like, well, this is an event we haven't dealt with before, which is partly true. This is, uh, in a sense, as unique as the Fukushima disaster after the tsunami in Japan back in 2011. Who would have ever anticipated that those nuclear power plants located at Fukushima would be close to, to full meltdown, but that did happen. And with the coronavirus now, I think nobody truly anticipated it would out, break out with the scale that it's uh, displayed. That said, we're in a different era now, I think from say 20 years ago, in which companies uh, have accepted the norm that if they are a, 
a company of any magnitude, regardless of country, and a new crisis certainly of this magnitude comes along, they have to step forward, first of all, to ensure employee safety, secondly, to get the business back operating, call it resilience, but the third and really interesting uh, kind of third avenue that we've been uh, tracking is companies now, since relief coming from governments, the World Bank, the United Nations, uh, lots of NGOs as well, uh, is no longer matching the need for support, for supplies, for face masks in the case of China, are increasingly stepping forward because of the norm that if you are a company or a human yeah. in a crisis like this, you have to do something that goes beyond your own immediate self-interest. Yeah. And so what's remarkable, and we're going to see more of this in China, I think, is you're going to see companies now probably still in the germination stage in, in, in executive thinking saying, what can we do to not bottom line, not getting our supply chains going again, but what can we do to help China and the people of Wuhan uh, dig out of the disaster that they've encountered? So one, that, that's an excellent point. And just one last point to you know, each of you. Uh, what are some of the most important lessons that can be learned from past disasters and the way companies responded to them that would help people today in, in dealing with the uncertainty that all of you, all of you have been talking about? Uh, Tyler, do you want to start? I think uh, Luis is the best person to take the first crack at this. Luis okay. is the expert. <laughs> Go ahead. It's all yours, Luis. Yeah, so if if I if I heard the question correctly, the the elements that we observe in the different studies that we have worked on is are related with the capacities that business organizations have to in, in their normal market operations that are used during the responses to these grand challenges. You know, what we see is that oftentimes, so there, there are two, just trying to organize my answer, there are two ways the business organizations normally respond. And, and just to uh, synthesize the, the decision-making process. One is donating cash, and the other, the other one is donating income and resources. Now, when we, think in, when we are thinking about income and resources, this might be related with a company sending their engineers to the affected area to evaluate the damage and use their skills to orchestrate the response. You have companies like DHL that basically have played the central role in logistics, in, in navigating the 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 delivery of disaster goods to the affected area, coordinating with national governments in airports to, to basically deliver uh, to the victims. Uh, we have the case of Coca-Cola during the ocean tsunami in 2004 that transformed the, the bottling line to produce water and use their own trucks to deliver to the victims. So what Dr. Mike and I observe is that when that happens, 
that the effect of the response by multinational enterprises is the highest. Meaning, uh, and the reason for that is that uh, the response builds on the core competences, the skills that companies have in the market in the market sphere. So when that happens, the the as many things that are important. One is the, for the organization is less costly to respond because it's tapping on its own resources. And on the other hand, the, the efficiency is, is higher because there's a particularly set of abilities and resources uh, that the company has that no other entity has. And those are used in, in, in the, during the response. So the cases with the coronavirus, for instance, where you have technology companies donating equipment to build the, this, this new hospital in Wuhan, and the, the, the cases of uh, car companies that send their, their, their uh, human resources to the area to try to help the victims and especially their employees basically fits this narrative. And, and we still obviously cannot uh, accurately measure what is going to the, what's going to be the impact of that. But if we can extrapolate any lesson from our previous research, is precisely that, that what we're seeing is a coordinated effort by business organizations, especially those, those organizations that are affected uh, in their supply chains. And when, when that response uh, it taps on their own core competences and market activity, uh, that is a win-win situation for everyone. Tyler? And so uh, just to build on what Luis said and touch upon something that Mike uh, mentioned a little bit earlier as well, I, I think that one of the really interesting things about the case like this with the coronavirus is it raises the question of what the companies do when a disaster is in the process of unfolding. When you have a, a discrete event, you know, the efforts become much more around, you know, recovery. But, you know, when there is something that is unfolding and it is something that, you know, might fall a little bit outside of the core competencies that business have, what's their role in helping to deal with this? Obviously, they're motivated, and we know from our research that if companies, you know, companies get involved faster, and this tends to have a positive effect on recovery. But, you know, how can companies learn from, you know, previous instances where there have been, you know, pandemics, epidemics, you know, things both in China and different parts of the world, you know, and, and what are the mechanisms that can increase the learning and the effectiveness and the coordination of, you know, these collective corporate responses uh, and how can they best work with other players who are on the ground and have, you know, the domain expertise in epidemiology, immunology, uh, and the domains that are going to be really important for getting this under control? So I think that this is an area for future research. We certainly have some interesting suggestions that companies can, should, and do play a role here. But in terms of, you know, what are the lessons that you take? Uh, you know, how do we ensure that, you know, that learning takes root and, you know, companies actually become progressively more effective in dealing with these things. Uh, you know, I think we're still, you know, looking for all the answers. 
And here's a, a final thought building on, on what's just been said as a, um, a belief, a norm, a, a kind of a, a, a almost a world culture in business now has emerged that companies should be engaged, not just with delivering shareholder value, but helping governments develop policy. Uh, and when a company has a unique uh, position of uh, being present in a country or having a supply chain that's uh, able to re-divert uh, or divert its resources in a different direction, uh, as that understanding has developed, companies just like humans have to be involved. I think now, um, sitting in a, in a company office or a university office for that matter, we ought to be asking, what can we do to help contribute in our own way? Good supplies, expertise, um, money for that matter, to help solve the problem. And to put that a little bit in the negative, uh, we have found in several instances, building now from experience and not from uh, research, but I think it's gonna be a research supportive proposition too, if you are absent from the field when there is a crisis and you could have done something, right. people are relatively unforgiving of those who sat on their hands during a tough moment. So we tracked uh, one bank, for example, uh, during the Fukushima crisis in Japan after the tsunami back in 2011, who uh, or which was on the verge of, of withdrawing its 1,000 employees from Tokyo. It had a huge presence. It's one of the world's great banks. And it opted to stay the course to not evacuate when others were. And to this day, the government of Japan is thankful yeah. for a company that did stand forward, did take a stand. Uh, it's a judgment call on how that's done. Of course, that has to be exquisitely exercised. But the bigger point, I think, from our research is that um, <laughs> we, as companies, as universities, we have to get involved when there's a crisis of this magnitude. That's a great note to end on. So, uh, 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 Mike, Tyler, Lewis, thank you all so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton on this very important topic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.